Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On Monday, January 17th, something took place that was highly unusual in the long history of the conflict in Yemen. The Houthi rebel group, which controls large swaths of territory in Yemen, including the capital city Sana'a, claimed credit for a drone strike hundreds of miles away in the United Arab Emirates. This included an attack on the Abu Dhabi airport, which killed three civilians. Then something very typical of this conflict occurred. The Saudi-led coalition mounted punishing airstrikes against targets in Sana'a, killing at least 20 people. This is just the latest flare-up in Yemen's long-running civil conflict, which accelerated dramatically in the fall of 2014 when Houthi rebels captured Sana'a and sought to overthrow the internationally recognized government. Then, in March 2015, this conflict was internationalized when a Saudi-led coalition intervened against the Houthis, including through airstrikes and blockades. This coalition, which is led by Saudi Arabia, includes the United Arab Emirates and is supported by the United States and the United Kingdom. Since then, the suffering of people in Yemen has been immense. It is one of the most dire humanitarian emergencies in the world and has been for years. I've returned to the crisis in Yemen many times on this podcast. If you want an even deeper dive into conflict dynamics in Yemen, I recommend the episode of this podcast from February 2021. And if you want a deeper dive into what has often been called economic warfare in Yemen, check out our episode from August. For now, I am pleased to have back on the show Scott Paul, the Senior Manager for Humanitarian Policy at Oxfam America. We kick off discussing the attack in Abu Dhabi and latest bombardment of Sana'a before having a broader discussion about the trajectory and impact of this years-long crisis. We recorded our conversation live on Twitter Spaces, and we were supposed to be joined by Scott Paul's colleague in Sana'a, but there were some connection issues. Uh, You will hear Scott Paul make reference to his colleague and read a message from him. Uh, And just a quick note before we start, ever since I've partnered with Twitter to record my episodes using Twitter Spaces, there has been just an absolute surge in new listeners to this podcast. I want to wish you a very warm welcome. I strongly encourage you to subscribe or follow the show if you're not already. Doing so will alert you of new episodes as they are posted and open up our very deep archives. And as regular listeners know, I do encourage you to reach out to me directly with suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or the contact button on my Twitter profile. Thank you and welcome. And for my longtime listeners, thanks for sticking with me for so long. 
All right, now here is my conversation with Scott Paul of Oxfam America. And there's sort of a hierarchy in a way of how Yemen is seen. And at the top of that hierarchy is things that Yemen does to other countries or things that Yemenis do to other countries, I should say, um, which is why um, cross-border attacks from Yemen into neighboring countries are given a huge amount of publicity and attention. Next, the next tier down below that is the experiences of people who live in Sana'a. And, um, you know, I'm getting messages from my colleague Abdul Wasa and I, my heart goes out to him and everyone else in Sana'a who are living in the residential neighborhoods under bombardment. And you don't hear as much about that as you hear about what happens in neighboring states, but you do hear some, a fair amount. And I think, you know, for the first, especially the first couple of years of the crisis, you know, the frequency of airstrikes combined with the presence, presence of diplomats and international media in Sana'a means you heard a fair amount about what was happening in Sana'a. And then the third tier underneath that is the violence and hardship experience and, and violations experiencing, experienced by everyone else in Yemen. Um, and I think the first time I went to Aden in 2018 was the first time I really appreciated that um, and visited uh, areas south of Taiz where people were displaced and, and talking about their experience and how neglected and marginalized they felt. Um, and then over the past year, more recently, um, our experience working in communities in Marib and IDP camps and settlements in Marib and, and coming to grips with how little um, the international community has heard them and, and, and recognized both the difficulties they were experiencing in the moment and the fears that they had should the conflict come closer to the town. Now the, ver- now the city, I should say. Um, and so I, I, you know, for everyone who's on this call who either thinks about policy or who covers media um, as a journalist, I think it's just worth bearing that that um, natural bias in mind. Well, you know, thank you, Scott. And, and frankly, um, I believe, you know, if I'm to be honest, I'm a reflection of that natural bias. I'm speaking to you now because of the news generated by that attack on the Abu Dhabi airport and the retaliatory airstrikes in Sana'a. So this is like a a living example of that bias that you just (laughs) described. And it's my own learning journey and trajectory also. So I I think many of us who work in this space are are guilty of it and trying to do better. So regarding this attack, can you just describe what happened? Yeah, well, so Monday, um, an attack was carried out, um, allegedly targeting uh, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company in Abu Dhabi. It killed three people, two Indian nationals and one Pakistani. And uh, the Houthis, or Ansar Allah as they're known in Yemen, have claimed uh, responsibility for the attack. Um, we don't operate, Oxfam doesn't operate in Yemen. I don't have colleagues who work with community, pardon me, in, in the United Arab Emirates. So I'm not in touch with people at the community level in the UAE. Um, I can't you know, begin to imagine what this means for people who are living and working there Um, but suffice it to say it's extremely condemnable. Um, what I can speak to a little bit better is, is what's happened since then, which is an increase in the frequency of airstrikes, Saudi, Saudi and Emirati led coalition airstrikes in Yemen, uh, which have, uh, had a really, um, negative impact on, on many people's lives, including, um, a number of deaths in Sana'a. And so, um, we can we can only hope that uh, this, along with other fronts in the conflicts, de-escalate very very quickly. 
so what does this drone strike in UAE claimed by the Houthis, you know, tell you about the trajectory of this conflict right now? Well, maybe one thing to appreciate is over the past few years, um, the UAE has signaled that it is trying to extract itself from the conflict in Yemen. Um, so UAE forces massively downgraded their presence in the country. And yet at the same time, there are a number of UAE supported forces inside the country, um, Yemeni forces that uh, have not only continued fighting, uh, but have, have been real protagonists in the conflict, uh, particularly in, in areas like Shabwa uh, and around Marib over the past half year or so. Um, and so, you know, I think many people who have followed the regional politics more closely than I have, uh, have pointed out recently that, you know, this in a way uh, signifies on the, on the part of the Houthis, um, you know, a, a, a message to the Emiratis that they, you know, they, they can't be half in, half out. Um, that's less my province. I think what I'm, what I'm, and what Oxfam is most concerned with is what, what all this means for people who are living through the world's still largest humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Um, and what we'd like to see very urgently is that all sides deescalate this, this conflict and start to, to put in place the building blocks for a political settlement. Yemen has long been uh, among the world's worst humanitarian crises. Could you just kind of briefly, you know, paint the humanitarian picture in Yemen right now? Where do things stand? Where are the needs greatest? And how is the sort of humanitarian suffering being felt by people in Yemen right now? What we've seen over the past couple of weeks is an escalation in the airstrikes. And over the past year, in certain places, an escalation in the fighting. But for most people and most families who are living in Yemen, the dynamics of this crisis have been static now for a number of years, because what they're experiencing first and foremost is an economic crisis. Uh, they're seeing government institutions that once provided support and offered a stable currency fall by the wayside. They're watching as imports are being obstructed and manipulated so that prices are getting pushed farther and farther out of reach. Um, and they're watching public services fall apart. And so, you know, what you have is this really horrible, deadly cocktail of violence combined with high prices, combined with low incomes um, and, and an economic system that's not really equipped to support people. Um, you know, Lise Grande, who was the UN humanitarian coordinator, was, you know, she was being a bit loose with the term famine because a famine hasn't been declared. But I, she used a very apt term. She said, what's happening in Yemen is an income famine. Um, so if we, and if we sort of detechnicalize that, um, what it means is that people don't, people aren't earning enough money to pay for the services and goods that they need to survive. Um, that's the, that's the ultimate foundation of this, of, of, of this crisis right now. So, so it's not necessarily that food is unavailable. It's that it's out of reach of people. That's exactly right. And I'll just say, you know, Yemen, even before this phase of the conflict began in 2014 and 2015, was the most economically unequal country in the Middle East region. And that is the sort of baseline condition and the foundation that the conflict has taken place on top of. So if you're a wealthy person in Yemen, um, you will be, you know, you are in danger of being affected by conflict. And there are many things that will be problematic for you. But 
you can afford food, you can afford healthcare. Um, you know, if you if you walk into a supermarket in Sanaa today, you can find it stocked with any delicacy you can imagine. Um, the people who are really struggling are people who were poor before this phase of the conflict began, and who have become even more deprived of income and purchasing power since. In addition to actual fighting, you know, shooting and bombing that's happening on the ground, layered on top of this crisis in Yemen is, you know, what's been called economic warfare. There are, for example, two competing currencies and two different central banks, and these sides are using, you know, inflation and deflation in order to inflict pain on the other. Could you maybe just kind of briefly sketch what are the sort of tactics being used in this economic warfare by each side to inflict pain on the other? Yeah, Mark, your timing is impeccable. Um, International Crisis Group released a report on this just today. I would highly, highly recommend that those of you who are interested read the report in full because it actually traces the roots of this economic warfare back into the days of Ali Abdullah Saleh and the revolution that followed. You know, but what's happening today is exactly as you described. You have you know, essentially two competing governing authorities, um, each trying to profit, each trying to support their legitimacy through through patronage networks, um, and each trying to weaken the other side um, by hurting the people who live uh, under their jurisdiction economically. Um, and so this is a race to the bottom across the country. And, and what makes it even more painful, as, as the crisis group report lays out very compellingly, is that the tactics each side is using that they believe is hurting poor people on the other side of the, of, of, of the line is actually hurting people across the country. So, um, you know, the, the, the government of Yemen's approach to fuel imports to stop them mostly from coming into the, the port of Hodeidah. Um, is actually hurting people in areas they control as much as in areas in the north and is only benefiting the same people who are profiting off of the armed conflict on both sides than if they would just allow fuel to proceed. Um, likewise, with, with the, the manipulation of the fuel markets by the de facto authorities. So they're using fuel, they're, they're using um, currency. You mentioned, um, for example, the authorities in the north have prohibited recognition of new banknotes printed in the South. Um, they're, they're manipulating um, government line ministries and trying to weaponize the other side's non-payment of salaries of government workers. And, you know, as everything else has, um, the, it, the brunt of this is falling on the people who can least afford to cope with it. Could you also um, kind of sketch the current state of the conflict in terms of, you know, who is controlling what territory, what tactics are being used? You know, I take it from having spoken with you before and others that perhaps it's more accurate to describe the Yemen conflict as the Yemen conflicts. Um, mm-hmm. Where So where is fighting currently happening on the ground? What are some tactics being used right now, both by the um, internationally recognized government, the Saudi-led coalition, and the Houthis, among others. Well, I'm I'm going to do a very inadequate job of answering this question. It's a big because... question. <laughs> this conflict has been going on for for many years now. But <laughs> yeah, if you could I... just help situate, summarize for for those who yeah. are kind of coming late. Yeah, I, I think the main point I want to make here, you know, is that in 2015, 
this conflict was largely viewed by the international community as um, a conflict between uh, an internationally recognized government that served as a loose proxy for the Saudis and Emiratis um, and a sort of Houthi-led uprising uh, that was a loose proxy for, uh, for Iran. And um, I, I think to the extent that those were that, that was an ever an apt summary, that has really broken down. And it's broken down in part because of how, um, how many different constituencies those two sides represent, in part because of the independence each side is able to wield from their alleged patrons, um, and also in part because of just how many more armed groups have come onto the scene. Um, and so, for example... You know, you see the, the fighting you see uh, in in Taiz, um, and the fighting you see in in Marib Governorate, you know, doesn't re- neatly reflect that breakdown, uh, or to, or to the extent it does, it actually, you know, it, it actually is 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 more about a number of um, groups that share common interests that are banding together to push back on on what they see as a common enemy. Um, again, this is a you know because the conflict has been so fragmented. And because the international community doesn't appropriately recognize that fragmentation, um, the international approach here is actually enabling the blockers to peace that have led both of those two quote-unquote sides. And so what, what I hope happens in the near future is a bit of a reset to that approach. And I, I think and hope we're seeing that now with, with the UN and the US um, but some of those other actors, and not just armed groups, and especially not armed groups, but civil society actors and youth groups and women's groups that at one point had a place at the negotiating table and were and were instrumental in determining Yemen's post-revolution course, need to come back into the fray. Drilling down on, on this um, idea of the international community's you know, diplomatic approach to Yemen over the years, I think it's fair to say it has been a, a failure. Um, the the fact that this conflict keeps dragging on seems to indicate that the various approaches by the international community, by the United States, by other key players, by the United Nations, have been inadequate uh, so far. Um, how would you describe right now the current state of diplomatic efforts uh, towards Yemen in terms of trying to you know, reduce the conflict? Like, what are we seeing happening right now? Well, at the moment, I think what you're seeing is, is that diplomatic efforts are in a state of flux. Um, there, I think, has been a really healthy recognition that what was attempted in the past isn't working anymore. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think as much as, you know, other people who care deeply about Yemen um, share my urgency to see talks resume and things moving. I think what's happening now is is a bit of stock taking for why that approach has failed. You know, one way I just mentioned it has failed is that it's reduced the talks to two sides, and in, and in, you know, in so doing, pushed out a lot of the potential peace builders and other people that might have more of an interest in seeing a settlement than you know some of the the more um, the, the individuals and constituencies more inclined to try to win on the battlefield. Um, another, which we've talked about, is you know the, the past diplomatic efforts have seen uh, economic issues as marginal to peace um, and, and potentially is disruptive to peace talks and at most confidence-building measures toward peace talks. I think what we're starting to see now, which I hope the crisis group's latest paper 
um, continues to move us towards is a scenario where we see actually that the economy is the heart of the conflict. And we can't move towards a more enduring political settlement um, without an understanding of how funds are going to be used for the good of people in Yemen. Um, so uh, I think that's, that's the way in which there's a state of flux. I think, though, at the same time, you know, what we've seen in the past couple of weeks also reflects some problematic tendencies of international actors to view Yemen through the prism of its regional neighbors. You know, um, Oxfam works in Sada, and we, we help local water authorities ensure that people have water for hand washing, for hygiene, uh, for drinking water. A week ago, Monday, uh, pardon me, a week ago, Tuesday, an airstrike destroyed um, and, and severely damaged a lot of that local water system. Um, as a result, there's a public health crisis that's brewing in Sada and in, in many districts of the city um, that's not really been recognized. 120,000 people are without any kind of safe water. Um, and so, you know, the international community's tendencies to hone in on condemnable and tragic attacks that take place like the ones in Abu Dhabi, but not really appreciate how Yemeni people are paying the price, I think is a, you know, an, an unfortunate and, and, um, and, and sad distortion uh, that the international community provides through its lens. I know that you in particular follow U.S. diplomacy uh, towards Yemen. Uh, is there anything significant happening on the U.S. side of things that might nudge uh, the conflict and the crisis in you know, one direction or another? Like, what, What's the latest you're hearing in terms of how the Biden administration, how Congress is approaching this crisis? I think the Biden administration is appreciating that within the frameworks of its overall policy, you know, which, you know, which I think takes for granted that there will be a security relationship with the with the Saudis and with the Emiratis, um, that it has some limited, it has limited leverage to affect, uh, affect an, a positive outcome. And a lot of that is also limited leverage with the Houthis. Um, so, you know, in a way, I think what it's trying to do is resurface some of those neglected issues, um, help on smaller issues where they can relating to humanitarian access and humanitarian funding, I think both of which are warmly welcome, you know, but they also know that aid isn't the solution to the crisis. And so I think um, what I hope they're doing also is, in addition to all of those sort of, you know, small d diplomatic efforts, also uh, getting behind the UN special envoys um, uh, new approach that that brings more actors in and focuses more on these economic issues. Um, I just also wanted to add, um, I did hear from Adulwasa uh, while I've been on this chat and, you know, it's, it's getting late there in Sana'a and um, he just asked me to reflect back to everyone um, just how difficult it is to be a parent living in Sana'a right now when the, the children don't want to leave the room because there's no sense of security. Um, with the kids waking up after midnight, they don't want to leave the room. And now everyone, you know, no one's sure where the next airstrike is going to come. And we, we've seen this play out not just in Sana'a, but, um, and not just with airstrikes, but with violence and different fronts of the war all across the country. Uh, thank you. And, and again, I'm, I'm sorry we could not get uh, Abdullah uh, connected to this to this conversation. 
So, Scott, we kicked off this conversation by describing and discussing recent seemingly escalatory actions, both by the Saudi-led coalition and by the Houthis, in terms of recent military engagements, both that attack in Abu Dhabi and also uh, an increased bombardment of neighborhoods in Sana'a. In the coming days or weeks, are there any inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not this escalation will be sustained or whether or not we be en- we may be entering like a new phase of the conflict or what would we'll be looking towards well i don't um <laughs> i i don't think this will be a shocker to many uh, people who have followed the country but you know i in a lot of ways the most superficial indications of the conflict you know are reliable uh, indicators of whether those trends will continue. So if we see more frequent airstrikes by the coalition, particularly in residential neighborhoods, um, and if we see more cross-border attacks by the Houthis, I think that will give us some indication of what direction the political talks will take and the economic talks will take. Um, separately from that, or I should say partly separate from that, um, I do hope and and this goes back to to a point we were discussing earlier that uh the the attention that's being paid to the missile attacks and the airstrikes doesn't detract from the urgency that Yemenis feel and international policymakers feel in resolving some of the economic issues that are really both driving the crisis and are the most tangible symptoms of the crisis for for many poor Yemenis so uh, those are those are a couple things i'd look to Uh, Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for pulling this together. And thanks to all our listeners and speakers who contributed. All right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to Scott Paul. I've known him a long time from my earliest days, uh, just kind of starting my career in D.C. And it's great to have him back on the show. Uh, And just a quick note, the conversation that you just listened to was very slightly edited. And uh, just note that the spaces that I host live tend to include a good deal of audience participation after I kind of do my one-on-one interviews with the guests uh, to be alerted as to when I am hosting one of these, just follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I don't really follow a set schedule. I, of course, follow a schedule for publishing these spaces as podcast episodes, but I just sort of try to be reactive and responsive to both my guests and events in the news in terms of scheduling these things. So just follow me on Twitter or not. You can just keep listening here. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye.